This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student at the University of Oxford and I study the history of disease. And I'm Maya and I work in public health in developing areas. Hello, welcome back to In Sickness. Uh, this time we're doing things a little bit differently and we're doing a two-parter about hysteria. This two, maybe two-part series, maybe more, it's kind of a huge topic and we've realized we got quite excited about it. So this maybe two-part series is focusing on women's health. Uh, we're both super passionate about this. We are both advocates for women's health, reproductive justice, and we're committed to reducing inequalities in healthcare. And that's obviously gonna come into play here. So we're gonna be talking about historical hysteria modern hysteria and how this disease question mark affects women's physical health even today and next episode we'll be talking about the mental health side of hysteria yeah and fair warning it's a lot it's a lot <laughs> sorry how many pages of notes maya like 12 i think yeah between 10 to 12 to be fair they're bulleted so it's probably only like okay eight. yeah it's it's just <laughs> indented isn't it Exactly. I'm very excited to talk about it. As am I. <laughs> okay, so getting started with the history, first of all, I wanted to say that I had a lot of trouble with this because as it turns out, hysteria is really complicated to study as a historical disease. And if you're guessing, if you're trying to guess why, it's because it's not one illness. It's like a category of illnesses and conditions. And the history of hysteria is basically the history of women's health and how women's health has been handled over a couple of millennia. So not well. And <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to clarify what you mean there is women's health as a whole has not been handled well. It has not been handled well. It will become clear what I mean in a couple of minutes. <laughs> Great, I'm ready. So... You'll notice that I called hysteria a category rather than an illness, and it's because the symptoms and the treatments change over time, and the only real constant when you're talking about hysteria in medical discourse is that it describes a sick or abnormal woman, and that's pretty much the only real requirement that stays the same across the board. Is there any way we can figure out how to record air quotes in this episode? We could just say quote unquote abnormal woman. We'll workshop some methods. So for, for episode one of this series, I'll be talking about hysteria as a physical ailment. But it's also important to remember that from the 18th century, it begins to take on mental health significance mainly because it appears in a really famous text called The Anatomy of Melancholy, and it converges with that illness uh, called melancholia, or what we would identify as depression today, but that's not exactly the same, but I can get into that next time. So hysteria comes from the Greek. They always come from the Greek. Hystera means womb, and hysterikos means of the womb. And according to the ancient Greeks, any number of ailments could cause the uterus to just up and wander around the body, pressing up on internal organs and causing different symptoms uh, depending on which organ it is suffocating. So yes, you heard that right. The ancient Greeks thought that when there was a problem in a woman's body, her womb, her uterus, had just wandered. I'm going to leave that there 
for a second. <laughs> you know, when I was writing it earlier, it didn't actually seem as weird as it does saying it out loud because, like, I don't know, I've encountered this before, and I feel like for someone who's never heard of this disease before, it might be a little bit strange to wrap your head around. Just wandered, like, away? Yeah, it just moved around. Yeah. <laughs> it's also called the suffocating womb. Who's it suffocating? It, the organs. It's suffocating the oh. other organs. Yeah. Okay. It's actually, it's super complicated, and they had a lot of reasons for thinking this, but I'm not going to get into all of the minutiae of that. I'm going to give you some highlights and, um, and a couple quotes. But essentially, hysteria, or the wandering womb, was, was thought to be, and I quote, caused by menstrual suppression, exhaustion, insufficient food, sexual abstinence, and dryness or lightness of the womb, and that it can be cured by marriage and or pregnancy. Wait, the list goes on. <laughs> Scent therapy, irritant pessaries, and various herbal concoctions administered by mouth, by nose, or direct to the vulva. Pliny recommends sneezing also, as an aside. To just fix your womb. To expel. <laughs> yeah, because like one of the theories that I didn't actually really want to get into, but I'll tell you anyway, because it's fun. It's like a theory of accumulated seed. So according to the ancient Greeks, menstruation was kind of the equivalent of sperm production in men. So like instead, their theory was that menstruation was the accumulation of your, uh, of your reproductive seed. And so they thought that when you, your face, <laughs> but yeah, they thought it was an excess of liquid up there. So they recommended that you sneeze and they would induce sneezing in order to clear the problem. Can I just say what a classic start? to assuming that everything that happens in women's bodies must be directly comparable to something happening in a man's body. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all for symmetry, but that seems to be a bit <laughs> much. Yeah, that's going to be a recurring theme for us today, the, the ideal male body and then the female body being considered either an aberration or something, yeah, something abnormal. Air quote. Air quote, abnormal. <laughs> How about just as a rule, if I say the word abnormal, that I'm also making the... Yes. Yeah, She's okay. making air quotes <laughs> for our listener. Uh, so yeah, to recap, hysteria can be cured by marriage or sneezing because those are the same. And the point is to release the fluids or solve the problem by using up the seed. All that to say in a woman, again, quoting, the, the womb is the origin of all diseases. Because what are we but walking wombs? You joke, but this is the whole theme of my section. <laughs> So as an aside, at some point in this history of hysteria, uh, they make the distinction between the actual wandering womb and the imaginary wandering womb. So you can have either of those conditions, except one of those is, an, one of those is like an actual physical displacement of the womb, and the other one is just all in your head. So even in this like dismissive sex-based diagnosis, they're still telling women that it's in their head. So that's cool. <laughs> And um, those views don't change. And to remind you why, Hippocratic theories of disease. So the medicine of ancient Greece continues to form the basis for European medicine until well into the 19th century. And we talked about this with, uh, with cholera, I think, and with anthrax as well. The theories of disease had carried on from these Greek mm. texts. And yeah. even though there were a lot of technological advancements, you already had the scientific revolution, the experimental method, you had a lot better 
tools and knowledge, but you were still using humoral theory and miasma theory and this whole idea that like your environment is somehow directly affecting your body and your health and that this is also dependent on your like disposition so like your own personal reaction to your environment so that's probably quite important to remember for what we're going to talk about later yeah so all throughout that the diagnosis of hysteria remains and and I'm sure medical doctors continued to pick and choose the elements that they liked from Hippocratic theory as well which is super important to remember when you're dealing with translations. So something that I don't think I've talked about before is actually how these ancient Greek texts make it to medieval and then early modern and then 19th century Europe. And it's important to highlight that because it doesn't just come straight from that. It's a corpus of texts that drop out of Europe after the collapse of the Roman Empire and that are worked on in the Byzantine Empire that are picked up by Arabic scholars and and medical doctors, uh, particularly in Spain, because that was also occupied by major Arab empires. And these texts become, they're translated, they are added upon, and they pick up all of these new features, and then they are reintroduced into Europe in the 11th century, after, after like, I don't know, like nearly a thousand years. Uh, so that deserves its own episode at some point, but I just wanted to mention it. That's really cool. I hadn't thought at all about the fact that, like, of course, people are translating them and sort of adding bits and taking bits out. Yeah. And yeah, it's just important to acknowledge because, like, there there are all of these other traditions that are that have completely, like, dropped out of our common knowledge and our popular understanding. So when I talk about the medicine of ancient Greece making it somehow to Europe and influencing us today, it's also gone through those intermediate steps. But anyway, that's that's a conversation for another time. Um, so as with a lot of things before the 20th century, the mind and the body are not totally distinct for medical, for medical practitioners when they talk about hysteria and perhaps especially when they're talking about hysteria. So up until about 1700, hysteria is strictly an affliction, an affliction of the womb. And after this time, it becomes associated with a certain personality or disposition and it can even be diagnosed as a type of hypochondria occurring in both men and women. You start to see medical writings about the link between hysteria and melancholy, which I've already dropped into the conversation, and that becomes a huge area of study in 18th century England especially. And this shift marks one of the many changes in the category of hysteria. So it goes, maybe this is an oversimplification, but based on my reading, it is mostly... Uh, considered a physical affliction and then it moves more into the realm of the mental and potentially even the imaginary but in this early modern world uh, the imaginary is actually affecting your health and for example like your your soul can have an effect on your body and your body can have an effect on your soul so it's kind of Mm. like this weird relationship so I wanted to quote from this great book that I read it's a collection of essays it's called Hysteria beyond Freud. In the 18th century, hysteria was increasingly classified as a neurosis. The excess blood naturally present in the female body led to increased nervous irritability, especially under the influence of too much meat, coffee, or tea, and insufficient exercise. At this time, according to the conventional medical wisdom, hysteria was a chronic, quintessentially feminine, disease resulting from the peculiar constitution and physiology of women. 
the only certain way to make sure one's fragile nerves were not further weakened was to conform to the prevailing social and biological notions of womanhood. So that was a morsel, but yeah, you heard that correctly. It was a category, a disease, a diagnosis that was based on the idea that that women need to be a certain type of woman in order to be considered a woman. Like, that's what I got out of that. Yeah, I also get this idea that something that we still have today of, like, if some if something's wrong with someone or if someone's acting in a way you don't like, well, blame it on her, period. She must be doing something wrong. Yeah, they're literally saying there's something wrong with you and it must be your womb wandering. So, yeah, on, on the one hand, you have the instability of this term slash category of hysteria, which points to a dismissal of pain or illness in women. There's some clear evidence that treating hysteria allows an all-male medical establishment to regulate women's bodies. It also shows that there's a clear priority where women are concerned, and that's their reproductive potential. The woman's value is, historically speaking, about her ability to bear children. Um, So the diagnosis is hysteria. The treatment is marriage. It's pregnancy or anything else that can keep a woman's sex drive in check and her physical person safe in the home. So let's remember that the system is in place for a reason, and that's to protect the status quo and reduce the autonomy of women, which was seen as dangerous. And at least in the English legal system, the only independent female legal person is a widow until like quite late. That's such a good, succinct paragraph. I feel like that sums up everything we're about to get way too riled up about. Yeah, and then I also (laughs) wanted to touch on another really big factor that we tend to forget as as like a fairly secular society and that's the religious legacy from the biblical tradition so woman was considered not only an offshoot of man so like literally made from adam's rib she was also the reason for the expulsion from the garden of eden so mm-hmm. lots of great parallels to be made about the standard male that the medical profession tends to base its treatments on that i'm sure we'll be talking about in maya's section and we will. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> We're going to get so enraged. It's going to be great. <laughs> According to a lot of people, original sin was a great reason to allow women to suffer. And, for example, a great argument against administering pain relief for childbirth, <sighs> which doesn't become a thing until Queen Victoria decides she's had enough. She's had, like, eight kids. <laughs> she's had it. She says, give me the ether. <laughs> I love that so much. I know. And then on the other hand, I I wanted to bring up the point that these same medical doctors were prescribing the color red as a cure for smallpox, even after inoculation and vaccination were invented. So am I surprised that the medical establishment wasn't doing so well on women's health? Maybe not so much. But yeah, that's just for context. Hysteria really takes off in the 19th century, both as a diagnosis and as a field of study. It begins to appear everywhere in pop culture and it quickly became democratized. And what I mean by that is that it wasn't a disease of a particular class. Everyone was coming down with it. Everyone was being uh, diagnosed with it. And it didn't really matter what social status you had, which is kind of unusual for uh, a lot of the diseases that we are dealing with. And it actually kind of became fashionable, which is weird. So people like Freud became famous for their study of hysteria. 
which was being used to explain deviance, it was being used to explain religious fervor, it was being used to explain women, because obviously you need to explain women, mm-hmm. and, and for engaging with the issue of the mind more generally. But I'll leave that for part two of however many we do on hysteria, along with the more, um, the more interesting and imaginative medical interventions like mesmerism. I'm excited to talk about that. So yeah, let's talk about modern hysteria now. Okay, so I wrote a lot and thought a lot and think a lot about this subject. Um, and I feel like Angel really summed up the the crux of it. And I'm sure I will repeat it more than once to, to you know, pound the point home. And there's a lot of data here. There's a lot of numbers. There's a lot of statistics that I hope won't make everyone sort of gaze off into space vaguely. <laughs> um, we'll try to make them compelling because I think this is really interesting and important. But I think I think the the point to start on is that from what you just heard, it's pretty clear that hysteria over the course of history was used as a catch-all term. But as you literally just said, it was a tool for controlling women. So you could explain away any behavior, especially what you couldn't treat. You could other women even through their illnesses. And it not only forced women to not express certain things, but it also prevented them from being able to access necessary services and make informed decisions about their own physical health. And I think that's really important because it's like you said, it's about bodily autonomy. The word hysteria was pretty much by definition only applied to women because it was about wombs. And while in theory, anyone can be hysterical, air quotes these days it definitely still has gendered connotations right like you call a woman hysterical it essentially means that you're calling her irrational or that she's overreacting or that she needs to calm down and that's kind of a great summary of what it was in history right like you're overreacting it's your womb you need to calm down oh i will just add that there is the exception of the hypochondria diagnosis and i would argue that that's that hysteria slash hypochondria diagnosis is um, applicable to men and women, but only in the sense that this is also like a feminizing kind of ailment. So it is still seen as a feminine thing, but it is being diagnosed in men and women, but mostly women. Okay. And applying that to the modern day, this idea that it's very feminized, women are really just still far more likely to be told that they are overreacting to their own health issues, that it's still in their head. There is actually a modern term that's the new equivalent of hysteria, (laughs) and they are called somatoform disorders, which is when symptoms cannot be identified or seen as consistent with one disease, and they are therefore identified as either being psychosomatic, so it's all in your head, or neurological, which means it's literally something happening in your brain. Funnily enough, women are 10 times as likely to be diagnosed with somatoform disorders, which is why I draw that parallel very easily. And as a quick note, as we enter the like full-blown modern analysis, despite the fact that symptoms of hysteria eventually came to match what we can now identify as essentially normal female bodily function and sexuality, the term was still classified as an actual mental disorder by the American Psychological Association until 1952. And because the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual, is reprinted so infrequently, hysteria was still in there until the 1980 edition. So when we say modern we truly mean modern. So to bring it back quickly to what we talked about in history and what Angel mentioned here, what was often diagnosed as hysteria in history 
pretty much should have always been diagnosed as a whole host of other real diseases, right? It was a catch-all phrase. Some of those diseases were physical, some were mental. Obviously, we're focusing on the physical today. And Angelique's favorite refrain, historical diagnosis is almost impossible. <laughs> yeah. But based on research, a brief list of some things that hysteria could have been. Uh, one is epilepsy, but we will talk about that more next time. One is ME, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. For this one, as recently as the 1970s, doctors felt that there was insufficient evidence to suggest that diseases could just affect your central nervous system. Right, so people were feeling a lot of pain, a lot of fatigue, and doctors were, just, were essentially saying, that's not possible. And therefore, they attributed the side effects of this disease to hysteria, ignoring biological causes. Also really commonly misdiagnosed were PCOS, endometriosis, menopause, infertility, other reproductive health issues. Endometriosis especially often presents as severe pelvic pain, and that was frequently attributed to hysteria, as was infertility the general inability to bear children for whatever reason. Um, as if, you know, if you sneezed more or you started living your life differently, then you might be able to bear children, which of course has a whole host of issues tied mm -hmm. up in that. And like, I was having this rant to you earlier about menopause, which is literally like <laughs> something that every woman will eventually go through that signals the end of her period of like fertility. If you're diagnosing menopause under the category of this disease called hysteria that only strengthens the point that hysteria is a cultural and ideological kind of category rather than a real medical thing mm -hmm. but it's still it still has so many repercussions from a medical standpoint though yeah and all of that basically comes together to show that there are areas where women are fatally misdiagnosed. And it, I do mean fatally, right? Like some of these things could have easily been solved. Some of these things could be recognized as just being a basic part of women's anatomy. And women still face a lot of problems getting appropriate treatment in those same areas today, specifically the diseases I just mentioned, which is in part why I mentioned them. Um, and instead of focusing on any one of those specific diseases, instead I'm going to discuss this issue of women in the health system getting appropriate care as a whole. Quick pause to say something that we probably should have said at the top, which is that this is a conversation about women's health and identifying as a woman might not mean that you are somebody that also has a womb or vice versa. There are a lot of complexities that we recognize within that. I will also talk about it more at the end, but I just wanted to raise it mm -hmm. at the top because we're talking yeah. about people with reproductive health systems and we are identifying that as female and calling it woman and we understand that that's not always mm -hmm. the case worth of saying, course probably. this system is harmful and this legacy of a catch-all phrase is going to be harmful to so many people yeah and we'll definitely bring it up more i just wanted to sneak her in there an excellent okay. point thank you so women are still getting misdiagnosed even without this term hysteria and it has a lot to do with this idea that is still super pervasive that women don't really know how to tell what's wrong with their own bodies. And also this idea that diseases and symptoms can all be identified by one term. And therefore dismissed. And therefore dismissed. Disease is primarily viewed through a male lens. Full stop. Often it's thought that women can only have women's diseases, by which I mean 
reproductive health issues, as has already been mentioned. And other things, other diseases are seen as only being had by men. Why are women having these difficulties in getting diagnosed? I'm going to talk about some structural components of that problem from two perspectives. One is medical research and data, and the other is gender biases in healthcare provision. So let's kick it off by talking about data. Doctors identifying symptoms and diagnosing them accurately is still a real challenge today. Why? Because big data is based on men. I read about this last night and I just still cannot believe that seems like a major oversight, but actually it's not an oversight, is it? It's by design. It's designed into the system. One component of this misdiagnosis that's so frequent is that the symptoms that are used to diagnose people are based on men. Clinical trials that are done to identify symptoms of diseases, how and when they're more likely to occur, how you can best treat them, it's pretty much still always done on men. So this is typically called gender blindness. As we have both mentioned, and I'm sure we'll continue to mention, this really negatively affects women's health outcomes. But it is worth saying that we can't ignore that this also has a negative effect on men's health too. Because if somebody assumes that something is more prevalent for women, men will be underdiagnosed with it. So an example of that is depression. It's assumed to be way more common in women, even though that's not really true. Mm-hmm. So men are less likely to be diagnosed with it. And that's an expression of toxic masculinity within the medical system. Isn't it just? Yeah. I have a whole thing about male hegemony. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can see why this got long, right? To quote MFM, toxic masculinity ruins the party again. Um, so sex and gender are underrepresented as factors in clinical trials and in biomedical research. And legislation has been passed on that, I think, starting since the 70s to try and improve that. But it doesn't honestly seem to be enforced very effectively because it's not getting all that much better. And I just want to give some examples of this. So a really common example is heart disease. It's the primary killer of both men and women in the United States. But women are drastically underrepresented in clinical trials, in treatment, and in symptom identification studies and tests are largely done on male animals and none of these things account for the variances that sex might have on results so for example heart disease let's include strokes in this the symptoms for stroke that we're almost familiar with left arm going numb face smelling toast those are male symptoms it's not the same for women so couldn't tell you a heart attack as well yeah apparently the symptoms are different they're completely different. And that's not common knowledge because the data we have on hand is based on Mm -hmm. men. Yeah. That's not something like I, I did lifeguarding training. I did first aid for years and years and I never learned any of the female symptoms until articles started coming out like last year about how heart attacks present in women. Yeah. And that's the thing is it's, you're also not set, you're not told heart attacks present in men like this. You're told heart attacks present like this, but They're generalizing men to the entire population. Great. Another good example is that women metabolize drugs differently, unsurprisingly. And yet prescription dosages are actually based on male physical reactions. And this has only been taken into account in the last decade or so, even though it was identified as an issue in the early 90s. Another heart disease component of this, the most common treatment for heart disease prevention is the use of aspirin. 
That was trialed in 1989, so that's been known for a long time. Except they trialed it on 22,000 men, no women. (laughs) Not until 2005 was a similar trial done measuring health outcomes in women. And in case you were curious, it actually showed completely different results. Surprise. So for men, aspirin reduces heart attack risk, but it can increase the risk of a stroke. For women, it reduces the risk of the stroke, but it didn't affect the risk of heart disease. So opposite. Pretty much opposite. And there were also huge differences in the age groups that it was most effective in between sexes, right? So there's obviously a big difference in how illnesses affect sex and genders, which I feel like we probably could have guessed. Anyway, this is still a big problem, clearly. Public interest groups are still campaigning to try and fix this issue so that people can actually get personalized care rather than being painted with a broad brush because it affects health outcomes. It makes people sicker. They're getting worse care. And it makes women less likely to be diagnosed with the appropriate illness. Again, in the case of heart disease, one out of five physicians didn't know that heart disease killed just as many women as it did men. Women are less likely to be recommended for cardiovascular health treatment than men, despite the fact that they're actually more susceptible to heart disease. Similarly with autism, women and girls are only recently starting to get these accurate diagnoses because medical practitioners thought that their autism symptoms were, giant air quotes, atypical. And by atypical, they mean those symptoms are different than those that are presented by men, which are the symptoms that they were taught in med school. So clearly, being able to identify how symptoms and treatments affect people other than men is a really great idea. Gosh, really? Who would have thought? Huh. Data. Check it off. Big data is a problem. What else might stand in the way of a woman getting an accurate diagnosis? Well, to sum it up in a neat bundle... The biggest factor that prevents them from getting accurately diagnosed? The fact that they're women. I will explain. (laughs) Statistically, (laughs) women are less likely to be believed when they say they're in pain. Doctors are more likely to believe that they are overreacting or that it's all in their head. This is sometimes called healthcare gaslighting, which is a fun thing. Doctors are also more likely to just sort of say, it's just a thing that women get, meaning there might be over-attributing symptoms to gynecological issues. Does that ring any bells? Re-wandering wombs. Yes, it does. I'm seeing a direct continuity into the present day, (laughs) actually. So I'm going to dig into these two ideas. One, that women are less likely to be believed, and the other, that we're over-associating issues with reproductive health. Um, I just want to share two data points that I thought were really interesting. One is that researchers did a study that showed that Comparing men and women in essentially identical situations who have abdominal pain, men were 13 to 25% more likely to get an opioid-based painkiller, even if both men and women had gone, gone under surgery the men were still far more likely to receive opioids. You mean in the aftermath of the surgery? Yep. That study was done in 2008. In a much earlier study in 1986, Researchers looked for what factors might have been associated with all these misdiagnoses that we're going to talk about. So like what, what things were most likely to be true of a person who got a bad diagnosis. One shared characteristic was a previously existing psychological disorder. The other associating factor, being a woman. Great. Just statistically made you more likely to be misdiagnosed. 
let's go on with this idea of misdiagnosis. <clears throat> Women aren't believed when they say they're in pain. Let's talk about that in the context of hegemonic masculinity, which focuses on the idea that there are typically masculine characteristics, such as being strong, brave, self-reliant. And there are typically feminine characteristics, such as being sensitive, feeling pain, and expressing discomfort. And those male characteristics are more valuable. In the research, and I think just in our common discourse, women are portrayed as being more sensitive to pain. But that doesn't legitimize the pain that they're feeling. It basically just means that people call them wusses, right? Like you're, you're being a baby. You're saying that you're in pain when you really can't be feeling that much pain. It's obviously not better that men are just supposed to grin and bear it. But what it does mean is that when a male person comes in complaining of pain, they're taken very seriously. Whereas if a woman comes in complaining of pain, they're taken less seriously because we must just be sensitive. Our recent review of literature showed that women presenting with pain are more likely to be described by their doctors as hysterical. Great. Funny how that word keeps coming up. There is essentially an implicit bias in how women are treated when they come in for care. Another issue comes up in cases where the only symptom of a disease is pain. Women are more likely to be diagnosed with a mental disorder if they come in complaining of something painful which we will talk about next time. But if it is a physical condition like fibromyalgia, where basically the only symptom is chronic pain, women presenting with these symptoms are called malingerers, time wasters, or even someone with unexplained symptoms, which is so frustrating because like, isn't it your job to explain <laughs> the symptoms? Being perceived as authentic is vital for those with pain conditions because what else can you do to prove it? Nothing, literally nothing. So you have to be seen as authentic in your claims of pain. And if the idea that you are a woman inherently dismisses that claim, dot, dot, dot. Another common thing is that women are often told that they look too good to be in pain. Like you're too young, you're too healthy. You put on your makeup today, so you can't be in that much pain. Basically, if you aren't presenting as visibly ill, it can also delegitimize your statements. I mean, I've experienced that. Have you experienced that? Yeah, great. Yes. <laughs> this kind of hegemony around standards of pain, especially those around continuing to maintain your daily life, so working around the house, keeping up your appearances, can really affect the way that people describe, internalize, and seek treatment for illness. So women are just taught to rationalize away their symptoms in ways that make them hesitate to seek help. And I could not tell you how many hundreds of stories of especially older women I've heard who are basically like, why would you need birth control to control your period symptoms? Periods are terrible. You're going to feel pain. That's just the way life is. They rationalize it away. This is womanhood. Mm -hmm. Definitely. do. No, you don't have to and you shouldn't have to. <clears throat> okay, so because of these beliefs around legitimate pain, which is just such an awful turn of phrase, women are also less likely to receive prescriptions for pain medications, as I mentioned. In fact, women are actually more likely to get a prescription for a sedative than they are for a painkiller. And to me, that also has really interesting reflections in hysteria. Like, you're overreacting, you're freaking out, take a sedative, not... I validate your pain. Here is a painkiller. Unsurprisingly, that bias is also racialized. Pretty much everything I have said up to this point is also racialized, just to be clear. But there's so much to say about this subject that I'm just 
going to brush over the surface and say specifically black women are one of the least likely groups of people to believe be believed by healthcare providers. They are least likely to be treated or diagnosed accurately, least likely to be given pain medication, and the least likely to have access to specific health services. In fact, there's a lot of data that shows that many healthcare professionals still have a lot of really false beliefs regarding quote-unquote biological differences between races. For example, thinking that black people have thicker skin and therefore feel pain less easily. And I know I don't have to say it, but that's obviously not true. These biases have clear implications in health outcomes, meaning black women are sicker most of their lives than their white counterparts or their male counterparts. And very tellingly, they are way more likely to die or have complications during childbirth. Yeah, there's really recent data about that. And there's also data about racialized health care for COVID as well. Yeah, yes. So that's my first conversation here about why is it so hard for women to get diagnosed? Because they're not taken seriously. Part two, another reason that it's hard for them to get diagnosed, us to get diagnosed appropriately, again, calling back to hysteria, is this assumption that any health issue that women face is likely to be a reproductive health issue. There are so many stories of women being told that their pain, their bleeding, their symptoms must have gynecological sources if no other answer presents itself. Is sex painful? Probably because you're menstruating. It'll go away. Women are often asked about their birth control. They are tested for STDs. They're checked for pregnancy. They're having their menstrual flows examined for years when a real diagnosis could have been much more easily ascertained. And arguably, it would be in a man where it literally just couldn't be attributed to female reproductive organs and cycles. A really common example of this is endometriosis. But... I think it also relates to being shamed for your reproductive or sexual organs. And I know that certainly has happened to me and I feel confident it's happened to most women who have had any experience in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, even really extreme symptoms that can be attributed to uh, menstruation-related side effect, such as PMDD, which is so extreme that often it's misdiagnosed as bipolar disorder are often ignored and women are just told, well, that's just what PMS is. So serious illnesses are misdiagnosed or ignored based on misconceptions about basic reproductive health organs and responses. I think I've heard of PMDD before and the symptoms are almost approaching psychosis, right? Like the hormonal shift is so drastic that it alters your perception of reality. It's really easy to see why it might be misdiagnosed with bipolar, bipolar disorder. Like it's, but it's like, it is centered around your menstrual cycle. And so it might be easier to sort of identify those highs and lows. But it, yeah, it's, it's a scary one for sure. And it's definitely mm-hmm. just now entering the consciousness. I mean, do we want to talk about postpartum depression or are we happy to gloss over that? I feel like we should talk about Let's that. Let's talk about it. Yeah, because postpartum depression is all of a sudden getting a little bit of attention, which is great because... It's a valid it's and literally real problem. Like, It is a valid and real problem that, yes, happens due to a hormonal imbalance following childbirth, but that can lead to such extreme consequences, like, for example, self-harm, harming your Mm -hmm. baby, and to have that just sort of dismissed because it has something to do with childbirth is, like, unacceptable. Anyway... All of this raises a really interesting discussion about how women's health issues 
and also their valid responses to stimuli are discredited as just being your period. She's acting crazy because she's on her period. To me, this feels like part and parcel of controlling women's behavior and bodily autonomy. If you can attribute actions to a biological component of someone's body, it's a very simple way of just derailing them. And I think it's also a component of a doctor being able to essentially attribute symptoms to stress or periods or just being a woman or hysteria and come out of that scenario feeling like, well, I solved it. I solved the issue. And that's kind of a cop out. It is. And a lot of the time she will come back with the same problem yeah, and there's so further down the line like it, people going to doctor's appointments after doctor's appointments for years and years and trying to find someone who will just take them seriously yeah we've all done it like having to tell the same story over and over and over again over a period of and years. then you doubt yourself of course you do yeah because like we we're we're taught to trust the medical establishment yeah. That's the and thing. okay i have a whole section that i didn't even type out about being your own advocate and the issues that this brings, right? Because one thing that you hear over and over again, especially for women, especially for people of color, is that you have to already know what to say when you go in. Otherwise, the likelihood that you will be appropriately diagnosed and treated is much lower. And I have had this experience for myself. I have helped others. I have seen it happen to others countless times. The ability to advocate for yourself a is a privilege, but B, it shouldn't be a requirement to get good quality care. I shouldn't have to tell them and know secret code words about my body and about what you're expecting to hear in order to get an accurate diagnosis. Having to advocate for yourself, like I should say these three buzzwords in order to be checked out for this thing is actually kind of crazy when you think about it. I mean, the pressure is on you to self-diagnose, which is, which is not anything... It's not something we're ever taught to do, and it's actually something we're actively discouraged from yeah. doing. I mean, I grew up hearing that I should not be on the internet trying to figure out what's wrong with me, but what you realize as a woman trying to function in the healthcare system with literally anything wrong with you, whether it's period-related or not, you need to have done a lot of research before you go in. Otherwise, they will try to get you out of their office as quickly as possible because that's how our medical system runs and I've seen so many times like especially it is true especially with like birth control I think that's the biggest example like to know what you want and to be able to ask accurately accurately for it is so much more important and will help you so much more than just going in and talking to your doctor about your issues you know I've had more conversations with friends with strangers about what works what doesn't work why they like it why they don't I've given medical advice obviously I'm not a doctor but I've given that exact list of buzzwords to advocate for yourself to more than one friend so that they can get the type of birth control they're interested in because they were told no and another problem is also um, whenever you have literally anything wrong with your menstrual cycle you will have the pill pushed on you regardless of what you're saying your symptoms are and even regardless of of whether whether the patient is saying no, I do not want to be on hormonal birth control because I am concerned about the side effects and they will have that completely be dismissed in favor of a simple answer to your problem about your menstrual cycle, whether that be pain, irregularity, maybe there's something else that's going on. And instead of getting an accurate diagnosis, they will instead try to treat the symptoms with this 
pill that causes severe side mm-hmm. effects. For sure. And it frankly is the medical professional's job to identify different potential diagnoses and ask the appropriate questions. For example, I would never know that if you have a urinary tract infection and the infection spreads, that your back starts hurting. That means that it's infected your kidneys. That's what that feels like. If I've never had that, I won't know that. But it's my doctor's job to ask me, does your back hurt so that they can treat it accurately? And I'm quite obviously, I think, speaking from experience where I was not asked a very simple diagnostic question and Mm -hmm. I got the wrong kind of antibiotics. I went through hell for the next three weeks because of it. Right? It's one question. And if we're not sharing everything, then we're not getting appropriately diagnosed. But is that burden, is that ability to speak for ourselves and advocate for ourselves about something we don't really know anything about on us? Yeah. But something that all doctors should know something about, and anyone who has ever had a kidney infection will tell you that the difference between a urinary tract infection and a kidney infection is leaving it untreated for maybe 24 to 48 hours extra than you already had. And a doctor would know that. Like, it it is inevitable that that infection will spread from your bladder to your kidneys. Well, now I know. (laughs) And now so do our listeners. So You're welcome. This has been put that under your hat. Healthcare self-advocacy <laughs> with Angelique and Maya. <laughs> okay, I'm going to bring it back around with the concluding right, okay. statement that clearly all people, I'm sure, have had adverse experiences with the healthcare system, but women especially have these ongoing battles. Almost everyone has a story like this, and it's wild. What are the outcomes of the fact that it's really hard for women to get diagnosed accurately? What happens? Well, pretty much universally, women live longer, but they are sicker than men. Chronic illness and pain, depression, migraines, all of these things are more common in women. And of course, the fact that women remain undiagnosed for longer means that they lack treatment, but they are spending money and time getting the right kind of care and that is stressful and exhausting and if you don't have unlimited Mm -hmm. resources at a certain point it's not something you can do and also statistically speaking women will carry the majority of the household burden as well exactly and which is just on top of my very nice line they are simultaneously living their everyday lives they have to function you are told that it is inexcusable to not function in your day-to-day life even if you feel awful And I think, I mean, I think an inverse stereotype, but one that describes this quite well is the man cold, right? And this idea Mm -hmm. that men just like cease functioning when they have a small illness and women call it the man cold. And I don't approve of that kind of stereotyping, but I think it's quite obvious that that comes from this idea that like if women have a cold where you got to keep going, take care of the kids, make dinner, go to work, you're not allowed to suffer it. And complaining about it as being and too you, sensitive. And you are expected, and you are expected to just swallow it. Exactly. And keep going. Yeah. There is a clear lack of female doctors in the States right now. Only 36% of practicing professional doctors are currently women. In Canada, it's a bit more balanced. 42% are women. I think that definitely does have a lot to do with the fact that doctors continue working for a long time. And so... A lot of med school graduating classes are more balanced than that. And I think it'll be interesting to see how that shifts things. But the amount of female doctors makes a real difference. The patients of women doctors survive longer, statistically. 
although female physicians are still paid less than men on average, <laughs> overall, their par- patients live longer. This seems to be because female doctors take a longer time to listen and talk to their patients and take them seriously. It's clearly a chronic issue that many male doctors don't take their female patients' claims seriously. So this obviously plays a huge role in getting an accurate diagnosis. It also seems to be true that female doctors follow clinical guidelines more closely, which I thought was a really interesting data point. And they also seem to have greater communication skills. As with all of this, I will once again mention, I don't think that all male doctors should be stereotyped as such and to have had many wonderful male doctors in my life. But statistically, Mm -hmm. these things are true. And I don't think I don't think we should attribute characteristics based on sex, right? Like just because you are a woman does not make you a better listener. Just because you're a man doesn't mean you don't care and you dismiss women. However, gender roles are really beaten into people with a stick. (laughs) And the only way that we're going to begin to address this, well, one of the ways is by recognizing that these characteristics are valuable or invaluable. Invaluable also means valuable, valuable or not valuable, (laughs) and addressing them, right? And seeing, like, this provides better care. This Mm -hmm. provides better services and outcomes. So let's... But it's also really important to highlight that we're not talking about individuals so much as we are talking about the systemic problems that we have dealing with women within the healthcare system. And, I mean, if you are a female doctor then you have been a female patient of perhaps a male doctor and you will perhaps be more inclined based on that experience to spend a bit more time with your patients and that kind of statistic because of for that reason like does not surprise me so um as i said at the top of my section None of this is to diminish the experiences of any individual of any sex or gender in the health system. Men also struggle to get diagnoses and treatment accurately. And that's not even touching at all on gender nonconforming or non-binary folk, the stigma and issues faced by members of the transgender community. That list goes on and on and on. I'm almost positive that there is a fascinating body of work to be explored closer to how sexual preferences were treated as a component of hysteria and how that changed over time. And I think we will likely touch on that next time. So by no means to diminish the things faced by the wide variety of communities who are underserved in healthcare, Mm -hmm. rather to point out that there has been a hegemonic control of the health sector. Well, let's be honest, not just the health sector, that marginalizes and controls other people's bodies and their rights to health in a way that diminishes them within society. And that's really important Mm -hmm. to point out at any given moment that we can. I mean, yeah, you're totally right. And I think this is just one facet of a much larger problem, which is the role of prejudice within something like the health system, but in our culture more generally. Hysteria, like looking at prejudice through the lens of hysteria is just another way to talk about the injustices that we subject each other to every day because of the way that we're constantly othering each other. And I think we're starting to see that a little bit more recently in this time of crisis, but it's always good to think about the ways in which we've constructed the system what it means about our culture and and especially like for me like looking at the legacies of historical hysteria and realizing that 
when you contrast the past and the present, not that much has really changed, but we feel like we live in a very different world when actually we're not that far removed. We just no longer need these structures in place that enforce a status quo that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Like we should be building a system that will help us to get to where we want to go rather than keeping us where we were. I think we're past saying we should fix the system because the system is operating exactly as it was designed to operate. That is true of politics. It is true of capitalism. It is true of healthcare. This is what was intended when it was put together by the people. It still currently benefits. And at a certain point, you just have to recognize, well, like passing legislation to make sure that gender and sex are recognized in biomedical studies isn't working because the people who are running them and are getting good care from them and are therefore in control of them don't really care about those because their needs are being met. Right? How often are women or people of color or women of color represented on the things that are negatively affecting their health care? Very rarely. It's mm-hmm. it's working as designed. And it's designed designed by people who like it wouldn't really occur to them to think, oh, let's let's design uh, a workplace that is more friendly to people with periods because they don't have them. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's why that book, Invisible Women, is so good because it talks about basically all those things, right? Like my favorite data point from the whole book is offices are freezing. All offices are cold to pretty much most women. And you know why? It's because the guy that devised the system that runs heating and air conditioning in most office buildings that's still being used from like 1950 or whatever the heck was a guy and men run just a few degrees warmer than women. So it's a perfect temperature for guys wearing suits and it's absolutely freezing for women. It is literally a product of the patriarchy. (laughs) Oh yeah. I remember being dressed in the office as if I was in the tundra. That's a side. Let's move on. Just rage. I mean. (laughs) So much rage. I think we have a lot of ideas of what can be done to get better. Right now I'm just full blown and like break the systems down and rebuild Mm -hmm. it all from scratch. But like obviously. I'm I'm sure that already is a first step like a lot of our male listeners will not have realized some of the effects of this health healthcare system and some of the inequalities that exist and the experiences that we've all been having. Like, again, it just won't occur to you if you don't face these issues, because why would it? It's really true. And I think that, yeah, like listening, having empathy, creating greater diversity, but like from the start, it's like, having a better and more diverse sex ed, having a better and more diverse medical textbook and data and classrooms and teachers mm-hmm. goes a really long way. Yeah. And that's maybe just the crux of it is just being like, we are all people. Obviously you have to identify differences in like biological health outcomes by sex because they are different, but each individual person should be treated in a way that will help them to get healthy. And it shouldn't be and, predetermined based on their sex or yeah. gender. I mean, prejudice to the best of our ability should be taken out of the equation. We should be taking each other seriously. Yeah. We should be destigmatizing things like periods. Oh my God, destigmatizing yeah. periods is about so much more than not getting grossed out when you hear about a period. It's about taking someone seriously who is responding to an event in their life and not attributing anything that is wrong with a woman to a hormonal imbalance because that yeah. totally invalidates whatever they're feeling and in the and same also way, just listening and adjusting your opinions when someone tells you how they feel 
Exactly, and that goes for men as well as women. And yeah, doing something like destigmatizing periods is also part and parcel of dismantling toxic masculinity. Like, I think those two things go together. 100%. You're so right. Take women seriously. And prejudice. I think we solved it. Great, smashed it. <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. Do you have a hooray? Yes. I mean, um, I was I was on my walk today. I was kind of reluctant to take it, and I was walking along the river path, and then this little dog started following me home, and he was so cute. He was like a little a little black doodle with a harness, um, out on a walk with with his like older owner, and then as I was walking away, I could hear the owner going, "Be polite to the dog," and I just thought that was adorable. <laughs> And so adorable. all I wanted to do was like pick it up and snuggle it and let it follow me home. But unfortunately, that's no longer the world that we live in. So I'll also share a dog related hooray. So I was sitting in a park <laughs> and I had like a little container of cream cheese open. And this he must have been a Yorkshire Terrier, but like one of those really wide, short ones, like a very heavy set boy wandered over and was like eyeballing the cream cheese. Um, and the, the two guys that owned him walked by a bit further away and were like, Baxter, no, it's human food. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, of course this dog's name is Baxter. I love this. <laughs> Whatever. He jogs away. But then they walked back through the same part like 20 minutes later and the dog came back to say hello. And of course, I didn't even look at the guys, but I remembered the dog. And I was like, hi, Baxter. There's still no food for you. And then his owner was like, how do you know my dog's <laughs> I was like, oh, we we talked earlier, but that's just fine. like we met. <laughs> we I met. met your dog. I will just say I looked forward to talking about this for a long time, and I think it was great. And I like getting all riled up on this topic with my friend. So do I. We are excited to put out another episode on this about mental health. I think I speak for both of us on that front. Absolutely. Um, coming soon. Okay, say goodbye. Uh, thank you and good night. Or good morning or good afternoon. Good evening. Thanks for listening. We're bad <laughs> at goodbyes. See you next time. Okay, bye. We're stopping. This is the end now. Bye. Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angelique and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya.